Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. And I'm Mark, her dad. At the time of this release, a former traffic homicide detective in South Florida, as I just retired. And we hope you guys enjoy. This week, we have a very special episode because this week is actually your last week as a working detective. Yes, it is. So he is almost officially retired. By the time this comes out, he will be officially retired after working 27 years. Yes, 27. 27 years in law enforcement. So he didn't know this prior, but I put together a special retirement themed episode for him. So I even chose a case that fits this theme. Awesome. I chose a case that actually features retirees. Dun, dun, dun. So this week, we'll be covering serial killers, Ray and Faye Copeland. Of course they're serial killers. They're retirees who just decided to get to killing. Okay. This case was actually suggested by Logan, my husband. Oh, gosh. All right. All th- tell me something? I think he's, like, trying to warn you, you know, now that you have got more time on your hands. Yeah, and your job vocation. Don't turn into Dexter, you know what I mean? <laughs> I got the majority of my information for this case from several articles, which, of course, I will link in the show notes. Also from an episode of Forensic Files, which is entitled Killer's Catalog. Oh, my. And an episode of The New Detectives, which is entitled Partners in Crime. Also, just so everybody is aware, my dad's actually in the midst of moving. So if he sounds a little echoey, it's because he's literally sitting in an empty house. The movers have already come. So if he sounds a little echoey, just sorry about it. Bear with us one show. Yes, please. And we'll be back to normal, hopefully, next week. So Ray Copeland was born on December 30th, 1914 in Oklahoma. So as you can tell, this is already, it's kind of an older case. Okay. Unfortunately, shortly after Ray was born, the Great Depression hit the United States. So Ray was forced to drop out of school in only the fourth grade to assist his father. And they owned a small family farm, so he had to assist his family on taking care of the farm. After a time, his family lost the farm. And they began kind of traveling around the country looking for work and attempting to survive. So the Great Depression was not friendly to Ray. By the age of 20, Ray became desperate enough to begin a life of petty crime. So he didn't begin stealing till he was 20, supposedly. But when he did start, he didn't begin by stealing from wealthy strangers, but instead he stole from his own struggling family. So it's kind of funny because we just talked about something similar in one of our last cases where he had also stole, one of the suspects also stole from his family, Cowan, remember? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at the age of 20, Ray stole hogs from his father's farm and sold them at auction, pocketing the money for himself. (laughs) Following this, he showed very little remorse and stole from the family once again. This time he stole government checks from his brother and committing fraud, he illegally cashed them. Nice guy. So although his family didn't press charges for those incidents, two years later, 
Ray was caught once again forging checks and this time was arrested for his crimes. So he served one year in jail and was released in 1940. Okay. It was after his release from prison that 26-year-old Ray met 19-year-old Faye Wilson and the two quickly fell in love. They quickly married and immediately began having children. So right off the bat, they're popping out kids. Okay. The couple would go on to eventually have six kids together. Jeez. Yeah, so a lot of kids. But along with children comes a larger share of financial responsibility that was difficult for Ray to bear. So as he'd already earned a reputation in town as a thief and a fraudster because of his past activities, it made it difficult for him to find and maintain steady income within the town he lived. Ray continuously turned to petty crime and went on to serve several more short prison sentences throughout his life. As a result of Ray's criminal reputation, the family eventually was forced to move repeatedly. So he was basically always trying to outrun the law or outrun his reputation. So he lived in a ton of towns all over the Midwest during this time. Okay. Finally, in 1967, when Ray was 53 and Faye was 46, the couple decided to settle down in a small town known as Mooresville, which is located in Missouri. There, they purchased a small farm. So Mooresville is an extremely small town. It still is to this day. At the time, it only consisted of 130 residents. So we're talking, yeah, like tiny, tiny town. Yeah, that's super small, yeah. So by 1970, Ray had already secured, I'm sure you're going to be shocked by this, a pretty ominous reputation throughout the town. Shocker. So he was pretty much despised by a lot of the residents. Imagine the gossip in that town, like... Oh, yeah, you can't outrun it. Like, no, at all. Like, the minute it happens, it's like... Yeah, it's big news. Yeah. So many of the residents suspected that Ray was a perpetual abuser. So they had kind of heard whisperings that he treated his wife and his children pretty viciously. Many residents also claimed that they'd personally witnessed Ray. So this is fucked up. They had personally witnessed Ray intentionally running over stray dogs with his truck for fun. What? He would just find stray dogs and run them over as, like, a means of entertainment. Oh, yeah, that's definitely, he's definitely got something fucking wrong. Yeah, he's off his rocker. Yeah, that's, yeah. One resident later told the New York Daily News that Ray was, quote, a menacing oddball. I'll say. That's an understatement. Yeah. The owner of the town's cafe recalled that he was, quote, really bitey and snappy. And he told the news outlet that whenever Ray entered his cafe, he'd often start yelling at the waitresses. So he's just a dick. Yeah, I mean, he probably probably has something, you know, mentally unstable with him as well. Like, I'm sure there's, you know, whether you say it or not, there's probably something like deep-seated that's happening, whether it's the upbringing or there's definitely like a wire, you know, a loose wire or something. Yeah. Just three years after moving to Mooresville in 1970, the residents began to notice that Ray often frequented areas that were known for hangouts for, like, hitchhikers and vagrants. He explained to neighbors and townspeople, because, of course, they're like, why are you always hanging out with a bunch of, you know, hitchhikers and homeless people? He said that he enjoyed helping people who were down on their luck, and he often offered those people employment on his farm until they were, you know, ready to move on to the next town. However, despite Ray's claims, Moorville's residents obviously did not believe that because they knew he wasn't a nice guy. 
So they suspected that Ray actually targeted those men because he knew that due to their high levels of substance abuse and just their lifestyle in general, that he could easily take advantage of them. So he could pay them less than they were due, basically. Right, exactly. It quickly became apparent that the small town farm was not producing enough income to completely support the couple and their six kids. So shortly after moving, Faye was forced to take on two extra jobs. So she began working at a local motel as a maid, and she also worked at a factory. Of her marriage to Ray, Faye later recalled to Forensic Files, quote, We were just everyday people. I was taught from childhood on when you marry, you stay with him. The husband was the boss, and he was the boss. Despite the farm and Faye's two jobs, the family continued to struggle financially. Al Copeland, who was one of the couple's sons, explained just how poor the family was, saying, quote, The only shoes we ever had were school shoes. You'd have to go out there milking the cows barefooted, and this included in the wintertime. So the parents literally didn't allow them to wear shoes outside because they only had one pair for school and they didn't want them ruined. Unreal. That's poor. Well, and imagine in the, they're in Missouri, so imagine the yeah. wintertime there. How did you not get frostbite? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I find that hard to believe, but I mean. So according to Al, his father was a terrible businessman due to his poor education, because remember, he quit school in fourth grade. So he explained, quote, because Ray could not read or write, and with bookkeeping, writing names down, where they were at, things like this, I mean, he needed somebody to write them down. Basically, he was illiterate. He never really learned how to read or write fully. So in order to run his business, Ray required workers who were literate and who could assist him with those aspects of the business. So his wife was literate, but he was not. Right. All right. Initially, he had his children help with those issues while they lived there. However, during the 1970s and early 80s, Ray and Faye's children were pretty much adults by that point. So they, they had all left the farm and went on to, you know, have their own lives. Right. And probably to get the hell away from them, too. Yeah, I pro- <laughs> probably got to escape that lovely lifestyle. Ray once again required new help to run the farm because he had relied heavily on his kids to, you know, keep track of all the bookkeeping and that sort of stuff. So that's when he really started to frequent these local homeless shelters to find employees for the farm. One former resident of these shelters, his name was Richard Perky, he recalled, quote, he'd ask people if they'd like to go out and, you know, make some money and get paid at the end of the day. Or we could help you get some finances started. And then he'd, you know, go out and get people and help get accounts started in a bank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not looking good. No. Of course, many of these men suffered from various afflictions which contributed to their homelessness and their desperation. So some had family issues, some suffered from alcohol or drug addictions, and a lot of them were just simply mentally ill. Right. So they were easy to take advantage of. And Ray quickly figured out how to do that. So he would go in there and promise to pay them $50 a day for their labor. And he told them that he would allow them to sleep in his home. So basically, he was giving them room and board plus $50 a day, which is, you know, a good deal for these guys. Right. Sure. So one of the homeless shelter employees, Ellie Widmer, explained, quote, Ellie or Eli? Ellie. It's a a woman. Oh, it's a girl. Okay. Yeah. She was an employee in the homeless shelter. Oh, Oh, I gotcha. Okay. So she said, quote, one of these men who was offered that kind of money and a place to live, especially maybe in a country setting, why it would just be paradise. It would be a dream come true for a man like that. 
I mean, I get it because you know they're they're getting a home or they're promised that anyway. Like they're yeah, in a yeah. I guess they're getting off the road or getting off right. the street or whatever. Okay, I see. All right, I see what you're saying. All right. So, in addition to taking advantage of the homeless, Ray was still committing petty crimes during this time as well. He attended local cattle auctions. He would sign a check for the cattle and then take the cattle home. The only problem with that was that Ray was fully aware that the checks he was writing would bounce because he didn't have the funds in the account. So in the days immediately following the auctions, he would quickly sell the cattle so that by the time the sellers realized his checks had bounced, that the cattle was already gone and he already had money in his pocket. Due to that criminal activity, Ray spent a lot of time in and out of jail when he was younger. Right. And by the 1980s, Ray was no longer allowed to participate in these cattle auctions because everyone knew by that. Remember, it's a small area. Everyone by that point was was like, nah, you're not allowed anymore because you've you know screwed everyone over enough already. Cattle ranchers, they don't play around with that. That's like a that's like a big business. Oh, yeah. So of this time, Faye Copeland recalled, quote, every time he would get arrested, he would call me to come bail him out. I bailed him out of jail quite a few times. Their son, Al, said, quote, about every 18 months, it seemed like it was police out there and him being gone for a while. It was common for us growing up. However, beginning in the late 1980s, despite Ray's banning from these cattle auctions, these fraudulent check schemes began occurring again at several of the auction houses throughout Missouri. <laughs> Repeatedly, different men would show up to the auctions, make their purchase, pay by check, and then the checks would inevitably bounce, and these men would disappear. There's nowhere to be found. Many of these frauds occurred at cattle auctions within Chillicothe, a slightly larger town a few miles outside of Mooresville. So remember, Mooresville, it's only a population of like 130, so it's super, super tiny. Right. The town of Chillicothe had about 10,000 people, so still small, but right. a lot right. bigger yeah. than, than yeah. Mooresville. Significantly, yeah. Former sheriff of Chillicothe, Leland O'Dell, explained, quote, It was odd that several of them would have checks, and then when we went looking for them, we couldn't find them. We'd enter into the computer, but they never show up. Through their investigation, police discovered that many of these men had worked for a small farm in Mooresville, for none other than Ray Copeland, who by this time was 78 years old. When Sheriff O'Dell showed up to the farm with several questions, both Ray and his wife, Faye, were kind and unassuming. Sheriff O'Dell recalled, quote, They appeared to be just an elderly farm couple that were kind of shy and didn't mix much with the other people, but I never knew of them, you know, causing any problem here. One of the men who'd signed these fraudulent checks was 27-year-old Dennis Murphy, and as you can imagine, investigators were anxious to talk to him. They asked the Copelands where they could find Dennis because he'd passed a bad check for $6,000 at a nearby auction to buy cattle. Ray informed investigators that Dennis had worked for him briefly but had taken off without a word some weeks prior to their arrival. He claimed Dennis had taken off in the middle of the night and when the couple awoke, his belongings were gone and they hadn't seen him since. Sheriff Odell explained, quote, He said, you know how transients are. They're here today and gone tomorrow and they would just leave. Ray also explained that he wasn't surprised that he'd been involved in check fraud because he too had been swindled by Dennis. He said Dennis had also written a check to him for some cattle, and it too had bounced. He then went into a nearby drawer and produced the check Dennis had supposedly written to him. <laughs> in addition to Dennis Murphy, the investigators were looking for seven other men who they believed were involved in the cattle scam as well. 
there were seven other names which had appeared on the many fraudulent checks left to the cattle sellers. In all, all seven men had stolen $32,000 worth of cattle. Investigators tried to locate all of these men, but had no luck as they were all transients and never stayed in one area for longer than a few months. They assumed that eventually these men would get arrested again, and at that point they'd be able to locate and question them because they'd be in the system. Right. Two years went by, and investigators were no closer to finding the men, until Crime Stoppers received a call from Nebraska. An anonymous man left a tip claiming he knew what had become of the eight missing men. He was also a drifter and a petty thief. He said that he too had once worked on Ray Copeland's farm for a brief period of time, and while he was there, he claimed that he had seen human bones lying around the property, including a human skull. He also claimed that while working on the farm one day, he'd turned to find Ray aiming a rifle at his head. Following that, he'd fled the farm and had never returned, fearing that Ray was a serial murderer. He also admitted that he too had been involved in the cattle scheme, which he claimed Ray Copeland to be the mastermind of. But because the caller did not reveal who he was, police could do nothing with the tip. Okay. Because they couldn't find the guy, right? Because he was anonymous. But my question is, is just, I guess, just because it was an anonymous tip, that's not enough to get a search warrant if this anonymous tipster is claiming like, hey, I saw bones on this guy's property. No, because you have to, well, at least in Florida, the rules of evidence, you may obtain evidence, whether it's like a statement or somebody's providing you some type of information, they have to be able to appear before a judge or before the court and say, yes, I discovered this evidence and presented it to the police. Like it's because then it becomes hearsay or it becomes like secondhand information. So unless the person like shows up the court or shows up for like a deposition or something like that, and he gets put into evidence or on the record, then all you can do is use it to kind of steer you, you know, down that direction. But unless the person's willing to cooperate or you know who it is, it's basically just, you know, like I said, it's just information that steers you a certain way and and it can't be used. Well, that makes sense because they couldn't do anything with it. Right. Like a perfect example of that, of like what I do with traffic fatalities and stuff, when it's like DUI involved and we're looking to charge DUI manslaughter, occasionally the driver whose DUI will be out of the car before law enforcement gets on the scene. And unless there's an independent witness, whether it's the other, first, the other driver or an independent witness who witnessed a crash that can say, yes, that person was behind the wheel and was driving the car. A lot of times the state attorney won't file those charges because we don't have like a, what's called a wheel witness. It's that a physical person that can put him behind the wheel. Because he could just say, oh, I wasn't driving. Right. Somebody else was driving, whatever, which we've encountered, you know, plenty of time. But now through video and, you know, there's other investigative means where we can, you know, we can determine that, you know, who the driver was. It doesn't happen as frequently, but it's a, that's a big problem when it comes to traffic related, you know, criminality and stuff, because. You have to have somebody that can physically put that person in actual physical control of the car and say, yeah, they were the operator and not, you know, somebody else or, you know, there was five people in the car who's the operator. So you have to have that credible witness that's willing to back up the information provided for it to be admissible. Well, these police got lucky because two weeks later, on September 6th, 1989, investigators, they caught a lucky break. A man named Jack McCormick had been arrested outside of Salem, Oregon, because he'd been sleeping along the highway. 
Once investigators in Oregon ran his information, they quickly realized he had a warrant out for his arrest in Missouri because he's one of the men that were wanted for these check frauds. Oh, okay. So they extradited him back to Missouri. Once there, investigators, of course, interrogated him, and he quickly admitted that he had been the anonymous tipster two weeks earlier. Excellent. So they, they basically just happened to find him because he fell asleep on the highway. Sometimes it's just dumb luck and, you know, they, you, something just pops up that strictly accidental and it's like the key that opens the door to the investigation. It's, it, it happens all the time. It's crazy. Well, this time it was definitely the key. So he told investigators that he'd been living at the Victory Mission, which was a homeless shelter for men in Springfield, Missouri. He'd been living there and Ray Copeland had stopped him and asked him if he wanted to take a job on his farm. He promised to pay Jack 20000 a year and offered him free boarding on top of that. Jack accepted, and Ray immediately helped Jack open his own bank account. He gave Jack a couple hundred dollars up front to open the account and instructed Jack to use a P.O. box as his address. Shortly following that, Ray invited Jack in on his cattle scheme, and the pair had attended cattle auctions together, where Ray directed Jack to buy cattle using his newly acquired checks. The two would enter the auction separately as to not raise suspicions because, remember, everyone pretty much knew who Ray was. From there, Ray would just sit in the stands and watch the auctions, but he would signal to Jack when cattle were shown that he wanted him to bid on. At first, the scheme seemed like a good deal to Jack. He told investigators that he began to grow suspicious of Ray, however, when he found a closet full of clothes within the home, which had belonged to other men from the homeless shelter. When asked how he'd known that the clothes belonged to those men, he informed investigators that some of the clothes had had the men's names written inside, which he claimed was a common practice among homeless individuals. So other homeless guys don't steal their shit. Right. Mm -hmm. Following several of these cattle purchases, the sheriff's department issued a warrant for Jack's arrest because all these checks are in his name. A few days later, on August 10th, 1989, Jack claimed that Ray attempted to kill him. He said Ray had approached him carrying a twenty-two rifle. Sheriff Odell explained, quote, Ray had the pretense of a coon being down in the hole there in the barn, and he wanted Jack to get down with a stick and poke it out of the hole. And Jack said when he got down there, he said he was already kind of scared of Ray, but when he got down there, he said he wouldn't take his eyes off of Ray. He kept looking up at him because Ray had the twenty-two rifle and supposedly was going to shoot the coon when it poked its head out of the hole. Jack said he looked up real fast, and then when he looked back, Ray had the rifle pointed at him. Jack claimed at this point that he begged Ray to spare his life. He promised Ray that he would leave the area and would never tell a soul about Ray or his check fraud scheme. Amazingly, according to Jack, Ray agreed, so he fled the farm. Wow, okay. Jack explained to the detectives that he did not know what made Ray spare his life but he stated he knew he'd been in imminent danger because he'd previously discovered a human skull and a leg bone on the farm prior to that. Oh, okay. For five months following this incident, Jack was true to his word and did not tell a soul about his experience. Because he was fearful, Ray would find him and murder him. He left Missouri, but after five months decided he had a responsibility to inform authorities as he feared Ray would not only hurt others, but that he had done so previously. Right. Of Jack McCormick, Sheriff Odell explained, quote, He was a drifter, he moved a lot, and he had a lot of stories, and I think he liked to tell a lot of stories. 
Already suspecting that Ray Copeland had something to do with the fraudulent cattle sales, investigators took Jack's statement seriously, despite Jack's propensity for storytelling. Investigators secured an arrest warrant for Faye and Ray Copeland for the check fraud because he'd explained that they'd both been in on it. They also secured a search warrant based on Jack's tip and searched the property for any human, re- any human remains. Ray Copeland's land consisted of 40 acres. It included a pond and several barns and a lot of densely wooded area. So the search was not easy. When investigators served Ray with the warrant, he smugly told them, quote, you'll find nothing on my place. Sheriff Odell explained, quote, we had search dogs, backhoes, and we'd punched a lot of holes around the farm. And we'd really searched this farm and hadn't found a thing. So, you know, you always think, well, maybe this didn't happen. After searching for nine days, police found some evidence to support Jack's story. When police searched the Copeland's home, they found a twenty-two rifle, which is what he claimed was pointed at him. Okay. Additionally, investigators found numerous articles of men's clothing, which were determined to not belong to any member of the Copeland family, and many of these articles of clothing did have names written inside, as Jack had stated. Creepily, investigators also found a half-finished quilt, which Faye Copeland had been making out of the scraps of those missing men's clothes. Oh, God. (laughs) Creepy. Yeah, that's... Additionally, hidden in a camera case, investigators discovered a handwritten note of a list of men Ray Copeland had hired. Four of the names listed had a large X marked next to their names. These four names were four of the men who'd been involved in the check fraud scheme with Ray and were currently missing. Despite these finds, investigators had not uncovered any bodies on the Copeland's farm. So the investigators decided to fly Jack McCormick back to Missouri and have him show them exactly where he'd seen the remains. Because remember, he said he saw the, the skull and the leg bone. Yep. Sheriff Odell recalled, quote, I asked him, I said, Jack, just point to where these bodies or where this skull and leg bone was. And he got outside there, kind of beside the barn, looking off down the pasture. And finally he said, well, really, he said, I didn't see any. He said it could have probably been a dishpan or something down there. So he admitted he lied about that. Okay. So he never saw a skull or leg bone. However, despite Jack's omission, detectives still began investigating Ray Copeland further. After looking into his background, they found it notable that Ray had been arrested numerous times in the past for fraudulent check writing. But they noted that he hadn't been arrested in the past 20 years and had never been arrested for any violent crime up to that point. Despite this, they were sure that his association with the missing men was no coincidence. Which, I mean, that's kind of common sense. Yeah, I would agree to that, too. (laughs) Meanwhile, the investigator's search and the Copeland's arrests were all over the news. Remember, small town. Yep. After seeing the media coverage, a neighboring rancher by the name of Keith Albright called the police. He informed them that he had rented a farm only six miles away from the Copeland's farm and that he'd hired Ray to complete some odd jobs for him around the farm. He told police that a few months earlier, he'd been walking out in one of his fields and found some bones, which at the time he just assumed were animal bones. But now he feared they may have been human. Oh, God. (laughs) So Keith was like, oh, fuck, those aren't animal bones. Keith gave investigators permission to search his property. 
Using search dogs, police quickly discovered a shallow grave within Keith's barn, amongst the hay bales. Within the grave were three decomposed bodies, all male. Mm -hmm. The coroner eventually determined that all three of the bodies had been there for two to three years. So, which is... The amount of time that... Yeah, around the right... Right. Okay. Coroner Scott Lindley recalled, quote, They were just wrapped in blankets in an earthen grave. That's what they were. And in this situation, they were in some clay ground, which tends to kind of ward off decomposition because the air doesn't get to it as quickly as it would in, say, a different type of soil. So they kind of got lucky that he buried them in... in, Semi-preserved. Right. Semi-preserved the bodies, so testing could be done. It was evident that all three men had been killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. Frustratingly, although the bodies were rather well-preserved, there was still no direct evidence linking Ray Copeland to their murders, because now these are found on someone else's property. It's not even his. Right. Despite this, the investigators questioned Ray regarding the bodies, and seeming to panic, Ray informed police that while he hadn't killed anyone, he'd once overheard a couple of strangers speaking about hiding a body within a well on a second neighboring farm, so on a completely different farm. (laughs) So this guy is, I mean, I know he obviously didn't finish school and all that. Not the brightest bulb, though. Not a lot of common sense. Because here he is, he knows they're looking at me. He's like, well, you know, I never killed anyone. But I did hear these uh, strangers. I, I don't know why they were talking about it in front of me. But uh, they said they threw a, another body down a well. I'm like, dude, if you had never said any of that, they probably would never would have found it. Of course, yeah, they wouldn't have gone to the well. They'd... Correct. It's just funny because I'm like, dude, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm glad you're dumb. But Most of the time we catch the dumb ones. Although in this case, it took a little while. But we have a saying, you can't fix stupid. Oh, yeah. So as there were still five missing men unaccounted for, because they've only found those three thus far. And there was, what, eight, eight total that were yeah. missing? Okay. Police immediately made their way to the well and quickly found a fourth body. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> the body had been weighted down with cement blocks and was still wearing a belt, which had the name Dennis pressed into the leather. So remember, the first guy that they were originally looking for, his name was Dennis. Dennis, though, okay. Immediately, police suspected that this was the body of Dennis Murphy, who they'd been searching for. Police continued to search that property, fearing that more bodies may have been placed there as well. So now they're searching three properties altogether. Right. They're searching Ray's property. They're searching Albright's property. And then this third property now. Oh, this will right with the well. Okay. They soon discovered an area outside of a barn where 2,000 bales of hay had been stacked. So these poor police officers had to move 2,000 bales of hay because they had to check underneath it. Mm -hmm. After painstakingly removing the hay, police uncovered yet another body, which was disposed of in the exact same way as the previous, the first three bodies that were found. Wrapped in a blanket. It too was wrapped in a blanket, and it was evident he died of a single gunshot wound to the head. Meanwhile, the skulls of each uncovered victim were sent to a forensic odontologist named Dr. Ronald Gear. He photo- this, I thought this was really cool. So he photographed each skull, took x-rays, and performed a dental examination because they have to, although they suspect who these men are, they have to yeah, positively identify them. Right. And they don't know which, because they're skeletons at this point, they don't know which one is which either. Right. From there, Dr. Greer was able to create a dental chart for each victim. This was done in an effort to match Dr. Greer's charts to past dental records of the missing men. However, this was extremely difficult because they unfortunately did not receive regular dental care. 
so there weren't a lot of dental records to go off of. And some of the records they located were over 30 years old prior to their disappearance. So, you know, what are the odds that their teeth even look the same? Exactly. Additionally, many, which this is awful, many of the schools were actually missing teeth because as a result of the shooting, because they were shot in the back of the head, it knocked out their teeth, some of them. Okay. So that obviously further complicated identification. Luckily for Dr. Gear, Dennis Murphy's previous dental records showed that a joint in Dennis's jaw was just misshapen, like he'd been born that way. So that allowed him to match his records to the man found in the well, which they already suspected, obviously, because he was wearing the Dennis belt. Right. They knew now without a doubt that that was, in fact, Dennis Murphy. Through painstakingly comparing the other schools to previous dental charts, Dr. Gear was also able to determine that the other four bodies belonged to four of the other missing men, Wayne Warner, Paul Cowart, Jimmy Dale Harvey, and John Freeman. So of these four men, three of them were the names on the list that they'd found in Copeland's homes with the X's written by them. There you go. That's the link. Coroner Scott Lindley determined that each of the five men had died as a result of a small caliber gunshot wound to the head which was fired at close range. Amazingly, in each skull, he was able to extract the bullets and the bullet fragments, which had killed them. Every single one had, wow. had it left in their head. Oh, that's true. These bullets were, of course, sent to ballistics, and it was then determined that each bullet matched the twenty-two caliber rifle discovered in Ray Copeland's home. So they knew he, it was from his gun. At this point, police charged Ray with the murders of all five men. However, investigators suspected that he had not acted alone and that his wife, Faye, had been involved in the murders. While Ray was in prison, Faye wrote him a letter assuring him that they would do all they could for him and that things would, quote, cool down. I'm like, "Mm, I don't think they're going to cool down, Faye. However, as all mail is inspected in prison, investigators confiscated this letter and compared that handwriting to the handwriting on the note that they had found in the camera case with the list of men. Because they knew, because Ray was illiterate, that someone else would have had to write the note, and therefore they surmised that someone else was in on this crime. The handwriting was ultimately a match to Faye's. And investigators then also arrested Faye and charged her with all five murders as well. So now they're both in jail. Of the arrest, the couple's son, Al, recalled, quote, What surprised me more than anything else was them actually arresting mom for the same thing. Following her arrest, she told investigators that she was innocent. She claimed she had no knowledge of the murders and was also a victim of race. She assured investigators that she'd been a victim of domestic violence for the entirety of their marriage, and she'd written the list of victims at the behest of her husband, but had not asked any questions at the time about what it meant. She later recalled, quote, I asked no questions. It wouldn't have done me any good if I had, because he would have slapped me across the house. Police did not believe Faye's claims, as there was no documented instances of domestic violence in the home toward Faye or any of the children. However, the couple's children did back up Faye's claims, and they too told investigators that Ray had been abusive towards their mother as well as them growing up. Their son, Al, explained, quote, There was one time one of my brothers was scraping the bottom of his bowl to eat, where he had had oatmeal. He didn't like the sound and took a frying pan to him. 
Myself personally milking cows, the old cow kicked the bucket over, and he took a pair of metal cow kickers and beat me with it for no reason. That was an everyday occurrence with him. So horrible. Despite the family's claims, police still believed Faye was more involved than she was willing to admit, not only because of the note, but also because of the quilts of clothes she'd been making as well. However, Faye claimed that she was unaware of the men's deaths and had only wanted to recycle the clothes that she believed the men had just left behind. Which, I mean, I think that's plausible. It is plausible. Faye Copeland explained, quote, Why would he do something like that when we had everything paid for? We didn't owe for nothing. We had the truck paid for, everything, all the machinery and all the farm and everything. Why would he turn around and do something like that? But I was not with him when he'd done his bad deeds. I knew nothing about it, and it didn't include me. I thought it was interesting that she said that, you know, they had everything paid for. Like, in the past, he'd stolen as a means of kind of making it by. But at this point, she's like, we didn't, we were fine. Right. Yeah, I guess the cattle business was going well for him, or the farm was, was doing well, so... So it's interesting that he still did all of this. Clearly, he just had a, a thirst for killing. I yeah, yeah, he was just it was just in him to continue doing it or to do it and then continue it. Despite Faye's claims, both she and Ray were tried separately for the murders. Prosecutors claimed that Ray would hire the workers at the homeless shelter, get them in on his cattle schemes, and would then kill them before the checks bounced in an effort to avoid capture. He then hid the bodies on a neighboring farm, hoping if the bodies were ever discovered that they would never be traced back to him. According to the couple's son, Al, quote, They were lower than anybody else. He could care less about them. They were on the government payroll. They didn't need to be there. They didn't even need to be alive. He had said that lots of times about transients. So he clearly had this weird hatred for homeless people, which I'm like, right. what, what do you care? It's not bothering you. Just leave them alone. <laughs> Yeah, clearly. I mean, he's got all kinds of fucking issues, so. Well, yeah. Faye was tried first, and on November 12, 1990, was ultimately found guilty of all five murders. She was sentenced to death. When told of his wife's sentence, Ray callously stated, quote, Well, those things happen to some, you know. <laughs> what a piece of work. He didn't even care that his wife was sentenced to death. He was like, whatever. Uh Six months later, on May 22, 1990, Ray was also found guilty and was also sentenced to death. And how, how old are they at this point? Uh, I will when get they're... there. Oh, okay. So of the sentences, their son Al said, Hooray, Ray deserved it. For what he'd done to the transients and the people all through his life, he deserved the death sentence. Of his mother's involvement, Al said, quote, I think she had some idea as far as the cattle scam going on. As far as the killings, I don't know. I don't think so. I hope, I pray to God, that she didn't know. So I thought it was interesting that he said that because I'm like, did you not ask her? I would be asking my mom, hey, did you know? He's like, oh, I don't know if she did or didn't. I mean, yeah, I would ask, I guess, myself, but maybe she just would never answer. Or maybe she... Or she just denied it and he doesn't... Denied it. And he didn't know what to believe. Right. Well, after only serving three years, Ray Copeland died of natural causes in prison in October of 1993. Mm. So he was 78 when he was arrested. Although it kind of sucked. He only ever served three years for all that. Yeah, but saved a lot of taxpayer dollars. I mean, that's true. Of them maintaining him until they eventually would have, I guess, put him down. 
So in 1999, after serving nine years on death row, Faye Copeland's sentence was commuted to life in prison. She stated, quote, I never go to bed. I never close my eyes. But when I relive a lot of my life over, wondering, was I to blame? No. So why should I have to pay for something he done? If he done it. So she's basically saying she doesn't even believe he did it. Oh, then yeah, she's. I'm like, girl. Okay, maybe you weren't involved. Maybe you were. Uh, no one's gonna know. But to say if he done, we know he done it for sure. Of course, all the evidence is there. It's not, nothing was fucking planted. Like it was, you know. Like. Right. Sadly, three of the missing men, Thomas Park, Franklin Hudson, and Dale Brake, were never discovered and still remain missing to this day. Investigators believe that they too were murdered and that their bodies are also buried on another property in the area. Saddest of all, investigators determined that altogether, the Copelands only made a total of 30000 on their cattle scheme, meaning that each of the missing men only earned the Copelands $6,000 each. That's what their life was worth. Yeah, 6000 that's it. You killed all those people for $30,000. Like, that's not, that's, I mean, don't get me wrong, 30000 is a lot of money. Like, I'd be happy to get it. But it's definitely yeah. not worth killing all those people. Like, no. that's no. nothing. After suffering a stroke in prison in 2002 at the age of 82, Faye was paroled from prison and sent to spend her last days in a nursing home. She lived for one more year and eventually died within the nursing home in 2003. Yeah, okay. My question to you, do you believe that Faye was involved or do you think she really genuinely, like, didn't know? Well, I think, I think she, I'm sure she knew about the cattle stuff. I mean, she'd been, well, even, so even, long. even her son said, I like, she knew about that. Right. As far as the murders, I mean, it's hard to say because it is plausible that if he was abusive to them, which even they supported, like all the kids supported, he could have told her, write these, these are my workers, write the name down or, you know, make some kind of story so that she doesn't know. I'd be interested to know if the X's, if the handwriting, the X marks themselves matched the handwriting as well, or if they were done. It did. The X's also, they were, they matched the names and they were also written in the exact same pen ink as the names were written in. Okay. So it's possible either way that she, maybe she put the X because they disappeared, like they left and like, okay, they're no longer working for us. Right. So, I mean, you can make the argument both ways, but. Even the quilt thing. I could see that going both ways, too. Like, it's a trophy. Or I could see it being just like she said, they just left all these clothes behind and I wasn't going to, I'm not going to let them go to waste, so I'm just going to make a quilt out of it. Yeah, the only thing that that would cause me to believe that she probably knew was that that kind of that statement, if he did it. Yeah, I agree that. I was kind of like, come on, girl. Because now she's trying to throw, she's trying to, like, it never happened, so they were both falsely accused. And yeah, the evidence is, is too strong that he definitely... Was involved. Right. And, you know, so I'm going to venture to say she probably did know to an extent. Maybe she didn't know, like, where he threw the bodies or, but, you know, like, he got rid of them and she knew what that meant, but they didn't really discuss it. But, but yeah, I think she probably, they were together too long. And I personally think that she knew about the murders. I don't think she was involved in them, like, in terms of, I don't think she was, you know, actively like, oh, yeah, we're killing these people. But I think that she knew they were going on, but it was... And knew and tolerated them. Right. And I it, right. I think part of that is probably due to... Because she, you know, it's it's pretty much 
proven that she was abused. So I think, yeah. I think maybe, I think maybe she knew what was going on, but just was like, I'm going to keep my mouth shut, you know, and live and my she life. She did with all of it. Like she never reported the domestic abuse. She never. Yeah. Even the abuse said. against her kids. Right. And she was raised to, you stay with the husband. And so, yeah, that's why I think it's more, I think it's more plausible that she knew to an extent, probably not the full extent, but she definitely, you know, I mean, and he was a criminal his whole entire life. So, you know, it's not like it's a shock that although he was never arrested or anything for violent crime, they always say that, oh, this is the first time he's been arrested for. Well, that just means he wasn't caught prior. It doesn't right. Necessarily... Well, we already know for a fact he was violent in the past. He he was running over stray dogs for fun. Well, right. He His yeah. kids have said they he would beat them every day, practically. So he clearly was a violent person. Once you move to like killing animals and stuff like that's a step up for that's like that's kind of like opens the door. I mean, it's been it's been like kind of I don't want to say historically, but it's been proven in the past through different studies and stuff like through the FBI and stuff, especially with serial killers or, you know, psychopaths and stuff that at some point in their lives, there's a propensity to start injuring and killing small things like moving up. And it's like always kind of like a, a next step, like taking a step up that that ladder to gaining the courage or trying to see if they get away with it, where it starts off innocently, like injuring a, you know, a bird or a frog or whatever, then maybe killing a cat, then, you know, like it, it's a progression. So the fact that he was doing that for entertainment purposes, just, you know, running down stray dogs, that just, you know, that's just, it all, it all makes sense. Like it all comes together with all the profiles and studies and stuff that have been done that he was just a fucking whack, whack a do piece of shit murderer. I agree. I think that he for sure obviously did it. There's no question about that. I think she knew about it, but I don't think she was as involved in it as maybe they blamed her for. Right. I think she just kept her mouth shut like she had for everything else. Right. It was just like, okay, this is part of our life and this is what he does. And, you know. Yeah. And just went with it. So. So because this is your big retirement episode. Dun, dun, ball. We are not going to end this episode with a question. Okay. Instead, I have a little clip of your retirement speech that a little birdie sent me from your oh, retirement party. Oh. So I'm going to include that. And I'm also, I gathered some recorded messages from many of your close friends and family members. And we're going to play those at the end. So what? So when this episode comes out, you got to make sure you listen to the end and hear what everybody has to say about you. Uh, so maybe I won't listen. <laughs> so congrats on 27 years. We are all very proud of you. One, I want to say a disclaimer that that video of my little speech that there was a lot of Jameson on board when that speech was made. So it's a beautiful speech. Just you know, don't pull a Ray Copeland and start uh, murdering no, people no, now no. that you're now that you're retired. You know, don't don't yeah, become Dexter. I don't know any. I don't own any property or farms or anything. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, until next time. Bye. Bye. Marky Mark, it is difficult to sum up an entire career in just a few minutes. However, I will do my best to sum it up so that I don't bore all your listeners. Whether at the time you knew it or not, 22 years ago, you had just inherited a little brother. It's crazy to think that after all the battles and close calls, we are still in one piece. You ending your career and me a close second behind you. Throughout our careers, we have always made a joke out of it. However, truth be told, you have always proven to be there for me 
on the job and in my personal life. I hope you know that I am so proud of you and look up to you as any little brother would. Thank you for everything you indeed did for the girls and I during my difficult times and for standing by my side when I took Sonia's hand in matrimony. Although we will be in different time zones and several hundred miles apart, I hope that you, Dee, Cass, Amanda, and Matt know that I love you all very much and I will never change. I wish you all the best, my brother, in your next endeavor, and I will see you again soon. Love you. Happy retirement, Mark. Congrats on an amazing career. Hope you enjoy retirement in Vegas, Mark. You deserve it. Love the Brito family. Hey, Mark. It's Kim. And Tim. Congratulations on your retirement. We love you, and we can't wait to celebrate soon. Hey, how's it going? Just a quick message here from Mark at uh, Mickey Burns Irish Pub in Hollywood. Just to say congratulations and best luck to Mark on his retirement. I thank you for all your service. It's been like over 10 years now since I've got to know you and Diane and your family. And uh, yeah, just to say that you've become really good friends and you know, we're gonna miss you when you move to Las Vegas. But I'm sure it's gonna give us an excuse to go to Vegas to visit. And many good times we've had in the bar. And I'm sure we're gonna have many good times in the future as well. So as I said, best of luck, Mark, and thanks again. Hi, Papa, happy retirement. Love, Lila. Hey, Dan. Congrats on your retirement. I'm really proud of you. Thank you for everything you've done for me and for everyone else. I think you're a really cool person. I love you lots. Hey, boss. This is your son-in-law. Happy retirement. Congrats. You deserve it. Hello, all. Avid fan here. Happy retirement, Mark. You have always given 150%, not only to your profession, but to our family as well. This is a well-deserved move into a new phase of our lives. We'll be able to spend more time with Cassie and the grandchildren. I know you'll be greatly missed by Manny and your department, and we are looking forward to spending more time with you. All my love, your wife. Bye. So as as Manny and a couple of you probably know that I didn't want to have this party because I didn't think too many people would show up. And I'm truly humbled that everybody did. And I'm very thankful you all have impacted in my life. I work for you because my name was attached to it and I'm proud of what I do and where I was. Being in homicide and traffic homicide is, uh, not everybody can do it, as we all know. And what we do is very special and I really took it to heart and I really wanted to excel in it because, again, my name was attached to it and I don't fail at anything that I try to do. But my work product is a reflection of my, my leadership and what we do for a living. So, thank you so much. Ow! Whatever. We would like to announce that after 27 years of dedicated service to the Miami Dade Police Department, Headquarters 1721, Detective Mark Martinez, ID 3809, is retiring. His most recent assignment is at traffic homicide since 2016. Some of his previous assignments include Uniform Patrol, Miami Lake Station, where, his, where he began his career. He was also part of the field training officer program in Northwest District and General Investigations Unit in Northwest District. We wish him farewell and good luck in all future endeavors. Headquarters 1721, Detective Mark Martinez, 
congratulations, and on 906. Anyone that would like to wish him farewell, please kiss by the PD Tech 5. Clear frequencies at 1331. All right. All right.